Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to tackle this entire chapter. So let me read chapter 11 for us, and then we'll take a moment to pray as we do every week and to ask for the Lord's help. 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that your mercies are new every morning. Father, we don't deserve to be here together this morning. You have been merciful to us already today. And we're thankful for that mercy that we know was purchased for us by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We're thankful that in your grace to us, you have sent your spirit to dwell in all who trust in Christ. And so even this morning, Father, we have your spirit within us at work in us, revealing yourself to us through the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us as we wrestle with and struggle with a passage like 1 Samuel chapter 11 to see exactly what it is you intend to teach us about yourself, about ourselves, and how we relate to you. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, that we would bear the image of Christ. 
And Father, we know that uh, we can do none of these things in our own strength, by our own determination. Instead, we need your grace, your mercy, the work of your spirit to be upon us this day through your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would do what we pray every week, that you would do what you have promised, and that is that you would change us and conform us to the likeness of Christ through the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name. So, Father, we pray that you would do that very thing this morning for our good and for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 11 is one of those chapters that if you're reading through your Bible and you read 1 Samuel chapter 11, then you may walk away wondering what in the world you're supposed to take away from it. What's the application for my life from 1 Samuel chapter 11? How does this apply to my life? What exactly is this supposed to teach me about God? What exactly am I supposed to do in obedience to this chapter? Now, Listen, I completely understand that feeling because if I'm honest, it's also one of those chapters that the pastor reads and thinks, is there a sermon here? Like, are we going to be able to fill up all the time to have something to say about 1 Samuel chapter 11? But this is where the beauty of meditating over God's word bears fruit. This is where we can see it at work. Because the reality is often we need to do more than just read through a chapter one time. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good thing to have regular Bible reading where you're trying to read through books of the Bible, maybe read through the Bible in a year or in two years. And in those cases, you're just reading through and that's okay. But there are other times where we need to slow down and where we may need to read the same passage over and over again so that we notice words that we didn't see on the first run through or we notice details we may have missed or repeating themes or even repeating words that help us understand what it is that God intends to say to us. I mean, we know this even in life. When we take our time to look at something, we see it in different ways. We see more details. You know, in fact, this is true if you've ever visited the Grand Canyon. I I won't repeat my escaped convict Grand Canyon story, but, and no, I wasn't the escaped convict, by the way. (laughs) Somebody else. But just as a reminder, my one visit to the Grand Canyon resulted in a stay of less than an hour because there was an escaped convict in the National Park when we were there. So we only got to go to one lookout point, look at this huge, vast expanse. And I can tell you some things about my experience there. I could recall some things about seeing the largeness, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, but I can't tell you the things that other people can tell you who go and spend a few nights there, who camp in the campground and who go to lots of different lookout points, even dozens of them, and look at different angles at the canyon, or perhaps they even hike or ride a mule to the bottom of the canyon, and they get to see the wildlife, and they make it to the bottom. And what looks like a little stream of the Colorado River to me, way up where I was, is a raging river at the bottom of the canyon. And they get to see the layers up close as they're walking by them. They get to touch them and feel them and experience them and see the little ants crawling on the wall of the canyon, things that I would never have been able to see in my time just standing at the one lookout point for less than an hour. Their experience of the Grand Canyon is completely different than my experience, not only because they weren't afraid of being kidnapped and held for ransom, but also but also because they got to spend a lot more time there and look at all the details of that beautiful place. Well, you see, in the same way, if you take time to meditate over God's word and to read one passage over and over again, to pay attention closely to it. You're going to see things that you don't see the first time you read it through, things you didn't notice at first. So for example, 
Something you may not have noticed on a first read-through of 1 Samuel chapter 11 is that the word salvation in some form is repeated three different times in three specific places in each section of the story. And as we see that, what I think we see arising is what it is that God intends to teach us in this passage and the theme of this passage. So, for example, look there with me at verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. If there's no one who can bring salvation to us, it's like they're actually asking a question, is there anyone who's going to save us? And then in the second section, we see the Lord declare that they will have salvation. You see that in verse 9? And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. It is coming. And then in the last section, verse 13, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Is there anyone to save us? The Lord will work salvation. And then he does it. And it is the Lord who did it. You see, in these repeating words, we see the point of 1 Samuel chapter 11 take shape. And it's the same shape that is the shape of the scriptures as a whole. It is this repeating theme that we see throughout God's word. Is there anyone to save? And God says, I'm the one who will save. And then he says, I'm the one who has saved you. So even as we work through this chapter, we're going to see this theme. And it's a very similar theme to what we saw last week, which is that God provides salvation to an undeserving people. God's grace is given to a people that do not deserve it. And as I mentioned last week, this is a really important theme for us to see because it is so important for us to see that even in the Old Testament, God's mercies are new every morning. The Old Testament is just not a story about a God of wrath. The scripture that was on the screen during Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? It was an Old Testament passage. His mercies are new every morning. And yet here's another example of God's patience and long-suffering with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, he puts up with a lot from his people. And he still pours out grace and mercy on them. In fact, it's, it's only after centuries of disobedience often that God finally breaks out in wrath and sends his people in to exile. So let's once again this morning be reminded of the grace and mercy of God who provides salvation to an undeserving people. So I simply want us to structure our way of working through this passage in each of those sections where the word saved or salvation occurs. First, we're going to see a faithless response, a faithless response. Who will save us? Is there anyone to save us? Second, God's faithful rescue. You shall have salvation. And then finally, we will see the kingdom renewed. The Lord has worked salvation. So let's begin there in verses one through four with the faithless response. Who will save us? So there in verses one through four, verse one, we're told about Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash was, we learned in chapter 12, specifically the king of the Ammonites. And he had come up against Jabesh Gilead to besiege it, to surround them, to cut them off from any supplies that could come. He had them essentially captured. And Jabesh Gilead was a, a portion of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe from which Saul came. Nahash has them surrounded, Jabesh Gilead besieged. And the men, the elders of Jabesh Gilead know that they are no match for the Ammonites. Remember, the tribe of Benjamin, as we saw last week, is one of the smallest, is the smallest tribe 
of the 12 tribes of Israel, they are no match for the nation of the Ammonites and Nahash coming against them. They know that if they were to try to fight against them, he would simply wipe them out. So instead of fighting, in verses 1 through 4, the elders try to strike up a deal with Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. They essentially offer to him, they say, we'll make a treaty with you. And if you don't attack us, if you don't kill us, we will commit to serving you and serving the Ammonites. In their minds, that's better than death. If we can at least convince him not to attack us, we'll just give ourselves over to him. But as verse 2 reveals to us, Nahash just isn't interested in a military victory. He's not interested in surrender. He's not just interested in gaining a bunch of servants. No, Nahash's desire is to bring disgrace upon Israel. That's his motivation. And so working out some kind of treaty isn't going to satisfy his motivations. He wants to disgrace the people of Israel. That's what he's aiming at. And so he doesn't give in to their treaty other than they meet one condition. Nahash says he'll make a treaty with them on one condition. You see that there in verse 2. If you let me gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel, if you're willing to do that, then I won't attack you. You may read that and think, well, Nahash, that's highly specific. Why the right eyes in particular? Well, we have to remember how ancient warfare was conducted. Their main weapons were swords and shields. Both were important to attack the shield to defend. And as with today, it seems to have always been this way. The vast majority of people are right-handed and so naturally, your sword is going to go in your right hand. Your sword needs to be in the hand that you're most capable with, right? If you're an athlete or play sports of any kind, if you've ever tried to throw a ball with your opposite hand, very few people are able to do it. It feels awkward. It feels weird. So imagine if you were trying to switch hands and go into battle with a sword in your left hand, you would be killed almost immediately. So they're going to put the sword in their strong hand and they're going to put the shield on their weak hand, their left hand to guard themselves. But what that means is that your vision on the left side of your body, your left eye, is going to be blocked by the shield. And your main vision is going to be out of which eye? Your right eye. So in order for you to go into battle with your sword in hand and your strong hand and your right hand and your shield to protect yourself, you need your right eye. Otherwise, you're going to have to be peeking out from around your shield constantly, which is not going to be a good situation for you. And so when he takes out their right eyes, it's so that he renders them incapable of fighting any longer. It brings disgrace on Israel because it's a disgrace, number one, to allow yourselves to be mutilated in such a way. But it's also a disgrace because that would render Jabesh Gilead completely unable ever to defend themselves again. They would not ever be able to go out to battle again to rise up against Nahash. That's why he wanted to specifically gouge out their right eyes. Now, I think you can see why the men of Jabesh were not eager to accept the deal, right? They're like, well, let's try option B. <laughs> so they say, give us seven days of respite, and we're going to send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, after seven days, if there's no one who's willing to come and save us, then we'll take the deal. Now, you may be asking the same question I asked when, when I read through, through this, which is, why did Nahash, Nahash accept these terms in the first place? 
right? Why allow them seven days to try and find somebody to come to their rescue? It's like that cliche in movies, right? When the bad guy gives the good guys time to do all this stuff when all he has to do is just kill them. Instead, he takes like 10 minutes to give a fancy speech and the good guy gets out and they're rescued and they, they get away, right? So why in the world does Nahash give them this kind of time? Well, we don't know with certainty, but we can give a few, I think, reasonable speculations as to why. First, I just genuinely don't think that Nahash believed anyone would come help this small group of people on the outskirts of Israel. You have to remember, the monarchy had not been established yet. This was a a loose conglomerate of 12 tribes. There was no standing army. There was no kind of official government. And so they were a weak nation, which is why they were constantly attacked. And so I just don't think Nahash thought anyone to come, would come help them. And so therefore, in his mind, he's like, well, I'm going to run over you, but I'll probably lose a few men. I'm going to lose some resources if I go ahead and attack you. So sure, I'll give you some time because I know ultimately you're going to bow to my deal. I'm going to gouge out your right eyes. I will have saved a few of my guys, a few of my soldiers in the process, and we'll be better off. So Nahash just lets them take the time to see if they can gather up any help. I just don't think he was intimidated by Israel at all. He knew that they were not a strong nation and that nobody would come help them. It just reminds us, by the way, how weak Israel was at this point in history. It helps us have a little bit of empathy, though it was still sinful and wrong. It helps us understand why the people sinfully asked for a king, right? We want a king so that we can be like the nation, so that he can go to battle for us, so that we can have a standing army. Because look, we don't have a standing army. We don't have anyone to lead us. And look what keeps happening to us. So it helps us make sense of that. The nations around them had no respect for them. They were a weak, struggling nation from a worldly perspective. But of course, we know they had all that mattered on their side which was the sovereign king of the universe. And he was enough. He was enough. But of course, they forgot about his faithfulness. He forgot about his sovereignty because throughout history, for over 300 years in the time of the judges, God never once failed to rescue his people when they cried out to him. But they had forgotten that. And so here they are, threatened by a nation, and they've already forgotten this key truth about their God, that he can rescue them in the most desperate of situations. And they simply say, is there going to be anyone to save us? We're not sure. From a worldly perspective, again, it might make sense. But from a theological perspective, it makes zero sense. God had proven over and over and over and over again that when his people cry out to him, he rescues them. That's the story of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a tragic book because the people continually rebel against God. They rebel. He brings nations against them to punish them. They cry out to him. But when they cry out, what does he do? He raises up a rescuer. He raises up a judge without fail every single time. And here they are threatened again, but they don't even cry out to him. They cry. They weep. But they don't cry out to God to rescue them. They are a faithless people and a long line of other examples of the faithlessness of God's people. It reminds me of a story that you know well that we'll encounter just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel when Goliath is standing and mocking the armies of the living God and he dares anyone to come out and fight against him. And 1 Samuel 17, 11 says that Saul and all of Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid. No one would dare go and fight against Goliath. And that's exactly what's happening in Jabesh Gilead. They're dismayed 
and greatly afraid and they think there's no way that they can have victory. They've forgotten that God is able to bring victory out of the most desperate of circumstances. They are a faithless people. But let's be honest, this could just as easily be our autobiography, could it not? You know, we've talked about this before, but all of us, all of us, if we're being honest, struggle with what I would call spiritual amnesia. We forget all the times in our life when God has been faithful to us. And the next time the trial comes, the next time the tribulation comes, the next time the hardship comes, we wonder, is he going to do it again? Will he be faithful again? In fact, we were just talking about this in our life group this past week. And if you're not in a life group, I would encourage you to be a part of one where you can reflect on the sermon and have conversations about it. It's so productive and important in your walk with Christ to talk about these things together. And we talked about it in our life group, how when trials come or threats loom over our life, we often forget everything what we've claimed to believe about God. It's like we just, we just forget. We forget his faithfulness. And this is exactly what God's people are doing. We forget about his past faithfulness and we put the trial of the moment, what we're going through in the moment, into a category that we believe is beyond God's hand. That's what the men of Jabesh are doing. They've forgotten their sovereign God who has rescued his people from dozens of nations throughout history. But here's the really good news, brothers and sisters. When we have those moments of spiritual amnesia, when we forget God's faithfulness and we forget to turn to him and we begin to even doubt him, if we're being honest, he does not turn away from us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 reminds us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He remains faithful. And we see that on display here. Even though the men of Jabesh have little, if not no faith, and they don't cry out to God as the example throughout Judges should have instructed them to do. They should have just cried out to God and said, God, won't you come rescue us? They don't cry out to him. They don't ask him to come rescue. They simply put their hope in man. They're going to ask around and maybe someone will come save them. And even though they don't cry out to him, what does God do anyway? He works salvation for his people. So let's look at this second mention of the word salvation, God's faithful rescue. God's faithful rescue. You shall have salvation. You see there in verse 5, Saul's coming from the field behind the oxen. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this question, but it's a question worth asking. Why in the world is Saul out plowing in the fields? Samuel has privately anointed him as king. He has publicly, we saw this last week, he has publicly been anointed as king. Everybody has seen it. Saul has been declared to be the king. Chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel said, Saul, you were going to rescue, save Israel from her surrounding enemies. Chapter 10, verse 7, Samuel said to Saul, look, when all these signs come upon you, when you can have confidence that this is, in fact, God's word to you, that you are the king of Israel, when the Spirit of God rushes upon you and you prophesy to give proof that God is with you, when that happens, he says, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. And though there are faithful men and women who plow fields, I don't think that's what Samuel had in mind. I don't think he had in mind, Saul, go plow some fields when he said, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. Saul is still seems to be cowering, afraid. He's not ready to step up to the task that God has called him to. But as God often does in our lives, he's going to find a way to get you to the place he wants you to be. <laughs> Even though Saul's out plowing in the field trying to avoid what God is calling him to, God's going to be sure that Saul takes care of what he wants Saul to take care of. 
No more being afraid. No more excuses. And we're told Saul is there, again, by God's providence, in the right place, at the right time, coming from the field behind the oxen. And verse 5 says that he sees the people weeping, and he asks, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? And so they told him about the threat coming from Nahash against Jabesh-Gilead. Verse 6 tells us that immediately the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, we will never know how Saul would have responded if the Spirit of the Lord had not rushed upon him. I think Saul would have perhaps said, I hate it for you guys. I've got a field to plow. That's his character to this point. He's not stepping up to what God has called him to. But God doesn't even give him the chance to react in his own strength with his own thoughts. No, what does God do? He sends the Spirit upon him. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. And again, we mentioned this last week. This, this is a significant phrase that the Spirit of God rushes upon him. It's the exact same phrase that's used of Samson in the book of Judges on three different occasions when the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson and gives him strength for the task at hand when he kills a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey, right? It's God giving him strength, preparing Samson for the moment. And it's that exact same phrase that is used of Saul, the Spirit of God rushes upon him once again. In addition to the time that it came to him to prophesy in chapter 10, it comes again. And the immediate impact of the spirit coming upon Saul, rushing upon Saul, is that his anger is greatly kindled. And this is not a sinful anger. There are times often, more often than not probably, when it is sinful and wrong and evil and wicked to be angry. But there is a righteous anger. This is a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered anger that Saul has. It is motivated by God's righteousness and God's justice in the world. His people are being mocked. There is an evil king threatening to gouge out the eyes of God's people, threatening to take out one of the tribes of God's people. And so Saul is rightly angered. Listen, brothers and sisters, there are things that you and I, as believing Christians, followers of Jesus, ought to be angry about. You can be angry and not sin. There are things that should cause anger to stir up in your soul if the Spirit is dwelling in you. Now, you don't have the right to act on that anger in any way you want. There's no excuses here. But you should feel angry about certain things that you experience. We should be angry that in our country, in our world, there is a culture where millions of image-bearing lives have been ended in the womb. You should be angry about that. It is unrighteous. It is unjust for image bearers of God to legally have their lives snuffed out in the womb. That's just one example of many of where we should feel a righteous anger about something. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we should treat people harshly. It's not what I am saying. Nor does it mean that any woman who has made that decision is beyond forgiveness or that we should hold some kind of grudge against them. Nor does it mean that we should love them any less than we love someone else. I want to be clear about that. God's forgiveness, the finished work of Christ, reaches out to those who have abortions. So we love people. We forgive people. But it does not mean we should not be angry that such things exist in our world. We should be angry at that injustice, at that unrighteousness. It is okay to be angry at injustice. It's clear that this is a spirit-filled anger at the injustice taking place against the people of Jabesh Gilead. God's people were being mocked. 
And remember, God had attached the glory of his name to his people. To mock his people is to mock the living God. To attack Israel is to attack the living God. That's why when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said to Abraham, those who bless you and your descendants, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so here is Nahash essentially cursing God's people, threatening God's people. And so God, in his faithfulness to his people, even though they didn't call out to him, even though they didn't cry out to him, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul so that he can rescue his people. And so verse 7 tells us that Saul took a yoke of oxen and he cuts them in pieces and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the message saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Now, this sounds like a really strange way of recruiting people, right? By the way, this is why it's so important that we distinguish between what's called descriptive passages in the Bible and prescriptive passages in the Bible. Descriptive passages are simply telling us what happened. They're not examples for us to follow. Prescriptive passages are things we are to follow, examples we are to follow, things we are to do, commands we are to obey. This is squarely in the descriptive passage, all right? Steve's not going to cut up some oxen and say, if you don't come volunteer for the AV table, this is going to happen to your oxen, right? He may want to do that. I don't know. But well, we're not going to do that, right? The Bible doesn't give us the right or the authority to do that. But this was would have been a common practice. This kind of thing was done. In fact, it's a fairly gruesome account, but just to briefly remind you, at the end of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin committed an atrocity. They raped and killed a concubine of a Levite. And so the Levite, to gather up the other 11 tribes against the tribe of Benjamin, cut up that concubine and sent out 12 pieces to the tribes of Israel to call them to come and to bring justice against the tribe of Benjamin. And so this is what Saul does. And people would have known this practice. They would have known exactly what this meant. The Lord used it to create dread, it says, in his people. You see that at the end of verse 7. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out. And there now is Saul, this guy who just a few minutes ago was out in the field plowing with his oxen. And now by the power of the Spirit of the Lord who has graciously come upon him, he is standing at the head of 330,000 men of Israel. This is what God can do to rescue his people, even if they don't deserve it. This is what he has done. And so Saul standing there with 330,000 men behind him says, send some messengers, tell the men of Jabesh Gilead. You see this in verse nine, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. It is coming. God has brought about the men who will save you. And so Saul, it says, divides the people into the 330,000 men. He divides them into three groups and they go, verse 11, into the midst of the camp in the morning and they strike down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And they so completely routed them and wiped them out, it says, that those who survived were scattered. And they were scattered to such a degree that not even two of them were left together. It's just individual men, just a few of them left running away from the battle. They completely routed them and won the victory that day. Now, the author of Samuel wants us to see this victory, this leadership from Saul, in a particular way in a couple of particular ways, I should say. One way in which the author is presenting this to us is to see Saul as 
the culmination of the time of the judges. Here it is. The time of the judges has come to an end. The monarchy, the king has come and he is ready to rule his people. And so we see all these themes throughout judges kind of center themselves in the person of Saul as king. So you saw the the spirit of the God rushed upon Saul just as it did Samson. We see that happening when Gideon, another well-known judge, when he went to battle, he divided the army into three different groups as well. We also see talking about Saul bringing salvation. That's exactly how Othniel and Ehud, two lesser known judges, were described. They were described as bringing salvation as saviors in the time of the judges. In other words, the author is piling on evidence and saying the time of the judges has come to an end. Saul is here and the kingship is now being established. But the other interesting thing in a providential turn of fate, this is the way God arranges things in history. God arranges different events that occur in the Old Testament by his sovereign hand to remind us of his promises. And so it is in God's sovereign providential hand that the first, the first foreign king to try to attack the first king of Israel would be a man named Nahash. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because the word Nahash is simply the Hebrew word for snake. He's a snake. Well, why is that significant? Because it is a snake, a Nahash, in Genesis chapter 3, that tempts Eve to eat the fruit. And her husband, who was with her, joins with her in that sin. And God brings his curses on man, of course, but also brings his curses on the Nahash. And he says to the Nahash, you will bruise the heel of the offspring of Eve, but her offspring will crush your head. And here, the first king of Israel is threatened. The first foreign king who threatens the first king of Israel is a Nahash who is obliterated and destroyed by the king of Israel. I think this is just one way of God hinting and saying, I'm going to do what I promised. I'm going to defeat Satan. I'm going to send my son, the divine king, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the promised one who will come, and he will crush the head of Satan He will lay down his life on the cross and he will take the wrath that all who believe in him deserve to have on them and he will take it on himself and he will die in our place on the cross and he will gloriously and victoriously rise from the grave on the third day and give us the promises so that one day all who trust in him will join him in his resurrection and we will have forgiveness for all eternity and sin and death will be defeated, which is of course exactly what he did when he sent Jesus born of man in Bethlehem. And this is just an echoing, a pointing forward to that day when that king would crush the head of Satan. King Saul crushed Nahash the serpent. And so once again, by the way, you see this is God's grace on display in the Old Testament. A people who didn't even cry out to God are rescued by God, by him providentially getting Saul out of the field sending a spirit upon him, having him courageously lead 330,000 men with precision and accuracy, knowing exactly how to divide them up, to go in and to absolutely wipe out Nahash, the serpent king of the Ammonites. God brought them salvation. And in doing so, he proved once again that he is the one who still sits on the throne of Israel. And so that brings us to our final step in God's grace to his people in this passage, and that is the kingdom renewed. The Lord has worked salvation. 
Look there with me at verses 12 through 15. The first thing you see in verse 12 is there are these zealous men who say, bring us those doubters, those men who asked if Saul should reign over us. That's referencing those men, those worthless fellows that were mentioned at the end of chapter 10. It says, if you remember from last week, some worthless fellow said, talking about Saul, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. These guys were questioning Saul's authority, his ability to save them. And so now that Saul has proven himself, now that Saul has marched to victory with 330,000 men behind him, they're saying, bring those worthless fellows over here. They deserve to die. And of course, Saul says, no, not, not today. Not today. It's not about me today. Not a man shall be put to death this day for today The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now think about it. This is is Saul's chance to take his curtain call, right? And to solidify his reign. I just led 330,000 men to victory. I wiped out this king who was threatening to take out part of Israel. I am the one who now rules over you, you pathetic doubters, off with your head, right? He could have put, struck fear in the hearts of every man who would ever doubt him ever again. It was his chance to establish the strength of his own arm, the power of his throne. But praise be to God in this moment, the spirit of the Lord was still upon him. And he says, no, today's a day to give glory and praise, not to me, not to make anyone think this day is about me because it was not me who worked salvation this day. It is the Lord who worked salvation in Israel. I love how one commentator put it, quote, Israel cannot afford to miss this point. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. Listen, we would do well to remember this in our own lives and in our church. Jesus told us in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or as Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 reminds us, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Or Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. All your efforts don't matter unless God is in them unless he's watching over the city, unless he's bringing the victory, unless we are abiding in him, we can do nothing. You see, God uses Saul to remind the people of Israel of all of these truths, that the Lord alone deserves all the glory for their victory. And this, this statement is what spurs Samuel in verse 14 to say, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So what does Samuel mean when he says, let us go renew the kingdom, not establish the kingdom, renew the kingdom. Well, this isn't mainly about establishing Saul as king, though that's certainly part of it, because that's not a renewal. The renewal is reminding them that God still reigns over his people. They had forgotten it. They had forgotten it and simply asked for a king. And Samuel says, we're going to go one more time, anoint Saul as king, this third and final time. There's been the private anointing, there was the public anointing, and now there's the public clear evidence that Saul is king by his victory in battle. 
And Samuel says, even though he's been privately anointed, publicly anointed, even though he's led you to victory, and even though we're going to anoint him as king, here finally he is established as your king. Even though all that's happening, it's still not about Saul. It's about the God who gave you Saul. It's about the God who rescued you by the grace of his hand, by raising up a man from a field to lead an army to bring about a miraculous rescue. Let's put the praise and the glory in the right place. And so it says at the end of verse 15, there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. They wanted to make peace with God for their sin of asking for a king. And they wanted to acknowledge that this is the day that we renew the kingdom and fix our eyes back on our sovereign, divine king and creator of the universe. Here's the final question. Why did the people have to go through this to experience kingdom renewal? For the same reasons God has to bring trials and suffering and tribulation into our life to renew his kingdom in our hearts. Because when things are going well, we almost always forget God's faithfulness. And the most precious gift he can give to us is to do whatever it takes to remind us that we need him. To remind us that he still sits on the throne to remind us that he is the faithful one who will never fail us. You see, it was in the midst of being threatened to have their right eyes gouged out and be in servitude to this evil pagan king. It is going through those fearful days and God used that and he miraculously delivered them by the power of the spirit to renew his kingdom in their lives and fix their eyes on their sovereign eternal king. Praise be to God that he knows better than we do. And he will fix our eyes on Jesus, our King and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we are once again thankful for the truth and the power of your word at work within us. What a powerful reminder for Samuel chapter 11 is of your, your grace and mercy to an undeserving people. Father, we are, we are those cowering, fearful people of Jabesh Gilead. And Father, we are so thankful, so thankful, even when we were in our confusion wondering who can save us, wretched men that we are, that you and your sovereign grace to us sent King Jesus among us to bring us victory through his death. Father, we are undeserving of the grace and mercy you have shown us in Jesus. And I pray that this story would remind us that you are a merciful God to an undeserving people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.